back in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 14 is where we find ourselves this morning. Now, if you've not been with us um, as a faith family, we have been walking through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, this first letter uh, to the Corinthians in a series that you see on the screen called Holiness, uh, the church's call and the church's challenge to that holiness. And we've been seeing how Paul has been calling the church itself, individual believers, and the corporate body uh, to continue to grow not only in their understanding of God, but who they are in God, and continue to deepen their walk and to, to further uh, their own personal holiness as they seek to honor God in all things. Now, we have come to uh, an important text this morning in our study in 1 Corinthians, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where really what we find in our passage this morning is Paul is making a concluding statement uh, to an argument that he's actually been making for some time over the past few weeks. And that conclusion is very simple for Paul this morning. It's this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, flee from idolatry. Now again, to understand a little bit more about what Paul is talking about when he talks about fleeing from idolatry, we have to have a, a, a basic understanding of the definition of the word idolatry. Now the world itself defines idolatry this way. It says idolatry is extreme adoration, love, or reverence for something or for someone. Now, for the Christian with a biblical worldview, we could simply define idolatry this way. It is the worship of someone or the worship of something other than God as though it were God. You see, these are the people or the things that are now taking the place of God within our own lives. And if you remember a week ago, we kind of talked about some pretty simple examples of idolatry that we could see within our own lives. You see, these were the things that we care more about, and the more that we then care about them, we care more about them than we do our own worship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when this happens, what ultimately happens in our lives is God then takes a back seat in our lives to the things or the people that have now been placed above Him. Now, again, early on in the Bible, we are warned against idolatry. In fact, if you go back and look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 in the Ten Commandments, you will see that God says that you shall have no other gods before me. Notice how the word that is given to us directly by God, directly for His people, and right out of the gate, what is the first thing that God tells them? Do not worship idols. So clearly we see that idol worship is a big deal to God. So this morning, we need to ask ourselves, if idolatry is such a big deal to God, if idolatry is such a big deal, even to the New Testament church, that, that Paul would use the phrase, flee from idolatry, as his conclusion to what he's been talking about, really since going back to chapter 8, then why is idolatry today such an easy trap for us to fall into? Why do we allow people, or why do we allow stuff, to take the place in our lives that is strictly reserved for God. Maybe a better question to ask this morning is this. Why does God not get our best? Or why does God not get our first fruits? You see, when we look at the text this morning, clearly Paul saw and heard this very same struggle amongst the Corinthian Christians. And so he writes to them to flee from that which takes the place of God in their lives and to flee from that which takes the place in their own worship. Paul says simply, flee from idolatry. 
So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you now to join me. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to begin picking up in the story in verse 14. And so if you could find your place in the Word, that would be great. And once you have found your place in the Word, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians at the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Paul, by the grace of God, writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything. Or that an idol is anything. No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. For you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, I said earlier that we're now arriving to Paul's conclusion from the words that he has already stated before. And as I mentioned, this passage literally closes out an argument that Paul has been making all the way back in chapter 8. Now, you may look upon this, and upon initial reading, you see a bunch of questions that go, how can this possibly be a conclusion when really it's just a list of questions from Paul? Well, if you go back and look at chapter 8, we see that Paul warns the church initially about eating food offered to idols. And he talks about the, the freedoms that we now get to enjoy. But then at the same time, Paul cautions the knowers to be aware of what they're doing when they're around what uh, Paul would call weak people, or better yet, those who are young and immature in their faith. And then we moved on from there into chapter 9, and we see Paul now calls the believers really to discipline themselves for the sake of the gospel and ultimately to surrender their rights and to run the race that is before them, this race that is life, run it in such a way that you win the race. So then by the time we get to chapter 10, Paul initially opened, a week ago we talked about this, by giving us examples of the Old Testament believers and how we should look upon that example and thus learn from them. And then all of them leads to the conclusion that Paul now makes right at the outset of this passage, which is the simple phrase, flee from idolatry. Paul will then move on from there to explain how, as those called to Christ, we are now called to live in unity through the example given to us by the Lord's Supper. Paul will then show us how we as believers should avoid being influenced by the things and the stuff and the, and the people that are around us who are not of God and thus could be seeking to lead us away from God and away from worshiping God. And then Paul then arrives at his conclusion from the passage by teaching us this, that we cannot challenge God nor think for a second that we could ever get ahead without God. 
So the question before us this morning that I want us to explore is this. How do we flee from idolatry? And I want us to see and understand that Paul's going to give us two ways that we can now flee from idolatry. And so this was meant to be a, a word of warning, a, a word of, of how we can move away from idolatry but, it's, uh, idolatry, but it's also meant to be an encouragement for the believers as well. So let's just hear this word again from Paul. The question being, how do we flee from idolatry? Verse 14 through 17, Paul gives us his first answer. He says that we can flee from idolatry when we recognize that we are together. We flee from idolatry when we recognize that we are together. Notice how Paul opens by calling the church to remember that we are now together in what it is that we are going through. Now again, Paul opens this passage with the conclusion that the church has now been waiting for since chapter 8 began. Now we know this because Paul gives us that beautiful word, therefore, which shows us that Paul is now arriving at some sort of conclusion to an argument that he's been making. Especially if you don't even want to go all the way back to chapter 8, you want to go back to chapter 9, verse 23, where it says that we do these things for the sake of the gospel. And here is the conclusion to what Paul is saying that we now do for the sake of the gospel. And notice it's Paul now calling the church, calling the Corinthian Christians, calling those whom he now loves, and he says to them, flee from idolatry. In fact, if you go back and, and, and read from, from chapter 8 on, you could read every section and then pause and say, for the sake of the gospel, this is why you should flee from idolatry. And then continue reading. You see, idolatry was a major problem amongst the Corinthian Christians. In fact, when you go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul calls the church to flee from sexual immorality, which, oh, by the way, he also calls idolatry. And yet here in our passage, we see that idolatry, or this particular idolatry that Paul is now speaking of, is what it is that the Corinthian Christians are now eating or drinking, especially when that food or drink is now coming from a place where it has been sacrificed to idols in a temple for idol worship. Now you may be thinking at this point, wait a minute, didn't we just discuss this and discuss the freedom that we now have to eat or drink all the way back in chapter 8? We did. However, for Paul, he's now going to take the knowers a little bit further. He's going to take a deeper dive into what he means about the food and the drink that is now offered to idols. In fact, notice how Paul begins here in verse 15. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Therefore, judge for yourselves what I say. Notice what Paul basically says to the Corinthian Christians at this point. He says, listen, you are wise. I trust the wisdom and the knowledge that has now been imparted to you. I trust what it is that you have been taught. I trust what it is that I have now taught you. And now you have the wisdom needed to assess the situation for yourselves. Notice how Paul is now showing his confidence in the biblical wisdom and the knowledge that the Corinthian Christians now possess. You see, Paul now has confidence in what it is that he has taught them. Paul has confidence in what it is that they now claim to believe. This is actually similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, when he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. 
You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, in what Paul is saying in verse 15, this really should be the goal for all believers as we seek to disciple one another. We want to disciple one another to the point where we can look at one another and say, I have confidence in the wisdom that has been entrusted to you according to the Word of God to go and do what it is the Word of God says. In fact, don't we as parents hope that same thing for our children? We as parents today, don't we understand that that God has has blessed us with this beautiful gift that that is a child, and even though they drive us crazy sometimes, we still have been given the incredible responsibility of teaching them and discipling them in the ways and the wonder that is God? But yet here's the reality. Even as parents, we are only stewards of the time that God has given us with our children. In the same way Paul was gifted with the time to steward the Corinthian Christians for the time that he was given. So as believers today, let's use the time that we've been given to instill biblical wisdom into our children, to instill biblical wisdom into the people that we are now discipling, and then let's take the next faithful step and then trust them to live out what it is that they have now learned. You see, this is important because even as Christians who live in a Western society that tells us to question everything and everyone, we as the people of God, according to the Word of God, have been called to trust the wisdom that is given to us by the Word and then to trust the wisdom that has been entrusted to us in one another. And so I want to ask this question even before we get into this this issue of idolatry. I mean, Paul literally puts a question in with a statement, if you will. Can we today as brothers and sisters in Christ be trusted? Can we today as brothers and sisters in Christ come together and say of ourselves that, man, we we are trustworthy when it comes to the ways of God? Maybe a better question to ask ourselves this morning as as believers, as as adult believers and and older believers and and, and mature believers, are, are you now passing along to the next generation the wisdom and the ways of God when it comes to how we are called to worship and how we are called to to study and enjoy the Word and, and how we are called to look and act and breathe as a church? Are we passing on the ways of the Lord to the next generation? Maybe that's a a hard question to wrap our mind around, so let's simplify it a little bit. Are we as Christians today modeling what it looks like to be a faithful believer in the same way that Paul taught and modeled it for the Corinthian Christians? Going into the text, Paul continues his call to recognize that we are really together in what is going on by drawing on the point and the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Notice verse 16 with me. He says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now again, this is a rhetorical question to which the Corinthian Christians should already know the answer for. However, for us today, this cup of blessing that Paul speaks of can also be called the cup of thanksgiving. You see, this cup that we have before us, this is a cup where we can come and give thanks for what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us. And so Paul teaches the Corinthian Christians in this moment, listen, together we can give thanks 
to Jesus Christ for the cup. Because it's the cup that reminds us of the powerful and magnificent way that God loves His people. In fact, we know because of the cup that God loved us so much that He sent His Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to die the death that we deserved. It was Jesus who had His blood spilt so that we may now know eternal life and enjoy the forgiveness of sin. It's the cup that reminds us of that. And so we have much to be thankful for. In fact, Jesus teaches us as much in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, when He says this, For this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But notice that Paul doesn't stop at the cup when we come back to our passage. He then takes the next faithful step and continues. He says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Notice how Paul teaches that like the cup, the broken bread now represents the broken body of Christ, which allows the believers to together experience the benefit of the hope that we now have because of what it was that Jesus Christ endured. Thus, Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians again that the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the hope that we now have because of Jesus Christ's death and ultimately His resurrection. You see, I want us to understand, faith family, this is why as a church, we come to the table weekly. I want us to understand that. like Everything we do has purpose in the church. Everything we do has reason. And some have, have worried that if we do communion weekly, it's going to become too programmatic. Some have said, hey, we're going to continue to do uh, communion every week, come to the table every week, and, and I'm afraid it's going to become too rote. I'm afraid it's going to become too mundane. How do you fight that? I want to tell you the answer is very simple, and it's found here in the words of Paul. We do communion every week. We end our services at gathering at the Lord's table each and every week because it reminds us of the relationship that we now share with Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. At the same time, we come to the table because it reminds us of the unity that we share as believers in the future promise of eternity, which is secure in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see the hope that's found at the table? Paul then even says as much when you get to verse 17. I kind of feel like I'm stealing Paul's thunder, but not really. Verse 17, he says it this way. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Notice what Paul is now calling the church to see. He says to them, listen, because of the table, because of the, the broken bread, because of the cup, we are now one. We are now together in what we do because of the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ. We are now together in how we struggle. We are now together because of the hope we now have in Christ. In other words, for Paul, we now share of the same bread, which reflects the same hope that all of us share in Christ Jesus our Lord. And notice how Paul notes this. He says that we are many. Now when Paul says that we are many, he's not talking about the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who come to the table. No, he's talking about the diversity that now comes to the table. 
You see, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different cultures, different, different wealth, different socioeconomic statuses. We all come from different status in and of itself. No one in here has the same story other than the fact that if you're a believer in Christ, the story at some point gets to the fact that Jesus Christ revealed himself to you and you were saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. That's the common ground. And so even though we are different, we have common ground that is found in the same source of life, which is Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord. So brothers and sisters in Christ, hear Paul's words this morning. When we come to the table, we don't just come as individuals. Yes, we do come individually, but we don't just come as individuals. We come together. We come together together in partaking of the elements of the table and sharing in the hope that we now have in Christ. So notice how the table not only now represents what it is that Christ has done for us and the love that God has shown us, but notice now that when we come to the table, we come together recognizing that in Christ Jesus, we are together as one. You see, for Paul, in speaking of the Lord's Supper, man, if you want to fight idolatry in your life, Paul says this. You need to recognize that you're not alone in this fight. You want to fight idolatry in your life? You need to recognize that that we're in this together. Remember about a month ago we talked about this? It started with a Sunday night conversation that kind of spilled over into a Sunday morning conversation and we said, hey, how are we struggling together? Again, we are together in this moment. And together, we will overcome in Christ, because of Christ, by Christ. And the beauty of it is, we do it together. So can I just offer you just a practical piece of advice? I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a cheat code. Can I give you a cheat code real quick? I know a lot of us come up and take the table and I tell you to go back to, the, to the, your seats and reflect and ponder. And some of you get this idea that I'm asking you just to kind of internally spill every horrible thing that's happened in your life. I'm going to offer you a cheat code today in grace. When you come forward and receive the table, go back and have a seat and then look around and see who else is coming to the table. You know why? Because I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that you're not alone. You're not alone in what you're going through. You're not alone in what you're struggling with. And you're definitely not alone as a believer in Christ in this room. Let's remember that we are together. But here's the beauty of it. Paul's not done there. Paul then gives us a second point to consider in how to overcome idolatry. So he says to us, hey, listen, you want to overcome idolatry? Recognize that you're, you're doing it together. Do it together and you will overcome. But here's the second thing he says. He says, how do we flee from idolatry? Also this, verse 18 through 22. He says this, we overcome idolatry when we realize the influence that's around us. You see, as those called by God, we need to realize the influence that the world has upon us. We need to realize the the influence that sin can have on us. We need to realize how our idols have influence over our lives. Now again, Paul makes this point by by yet giving us another example from the Old Testament, similar to one that we read last week, looking at verse 18. Paul says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? 
Now again, in saying this, Paul's taken us back to Leviticus chapter 7 where the extra food that was left over from the sacrifice would either be eaten by the priests or it would be given back and eaten by the ones who then gave the food. Thus, those who ate this food were still enjoying fellowship with God and therefore benefiting from what was offered in worship in the temple. So again, nothing bad happening at this point, right? However, Paul gives us this example here in uh, verse, uh, verse 18 in order to do a comparison between what was happening in the temple of God to what was now happening in pagan temples. Paul continues, verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Notice again, Paul is asking a rhetorical question. The believers already know the answer to this question because Paul knows really the conclusions that the Corinthian Christians will draw from his own comments. He not only knows the conclusions they're going to draw, but he's going to, he's going to know what they're going to think about what he just said about the Lord's Supper and the example that he's just given them from the Old Testament. Now, footnote here. Many scholars have taken this passage and suggested that Paul was really taken back to what he was already stated in chapter 8. And so there have been several scholars who claim to be Christians, use that term loosely, who says here is the moment that the Bible contradicts itself. Some have even argued that, that maybe what Paul was doing at this moment was questioning whether or not there was any power in the food at all. But if we want to understand what Paul was talking about, you've got to read the rest of the passage because, again, context is key, and Paul's going to answer his own question. Verse 20, what does he say? No. Literally, it's like a scholar asking, Paul, are you contradicting yourself? Paul says, no. Read on. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Notice how Paul brings this entire passage to a stunning conclusion. Paul says these words. The idol itself is nothing. The food that is offered, it's nothing. It's just food. Idle food is just that. It's food. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's not changing anything. However, the intent is what's changing everything. You see, because in the intent, there are demons at work where there are idols. And so Paul says, the intent is clear because demonic activity is very real and very clear. Hence, Paul now calls the church to be mindful of what it is that they're doing. He calls the church to be mindful of the influence of idols within the church, even in what it is that they eat and what it is that they drink and how, how these things can have influence over their lives. Now, to understand really Paul's point in context, we have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, where we see the wilderness generation that angered the Lord and roused his jealousy when, according to the text, they created their worthless idols. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 32 tells us. And then Moses went on to, to even say of these idols and, and these gods that Israel had now turned to them and that these idols couldn't even help them nor protect them in the way God could. But here's the key to what's being said in Deuteronomy 32. We learn from the Word of God that even though these were false gods that offered nothing, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17 tells us that they are still designated as demons. Thus, Paul is now making the same comparison to remind the people that the idol itself 
has no power. And although the idol itself is powerless, the intent, the demonic activity among them do exist. And if we are not careful, these things can inflict damage upon the people as they seek to influence them. Again, Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to realize and understand the influence that was all around them. He wanted them to understand the influence of the demonic activity that was now very real and taking place in their lives. And it's interesting because even today, like the Corinthian Christians, we don't often talk about idolatry in that sense. How many of us even use the word idolatry anymore? How many of us say, well, that's an idol. I need to get rid of it. We don't. Why? Because we don't want to recognize the demonic influence that could come with the idols that we worship above God. Don't believe me? Let me, let me encourage you to read a wonderful book. Many of you probably read it. Read it again. Written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. This is a demon talking to a demon. And here's what the older one says to the younger. Says it this way. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. When in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. In other words, the devil and demonic activity would love nothing more than for the church to lack the realization of the influence of idol worship within their lives. And here's what's happened as a Western church. Here's what's happened as a Western society. We have been lulled to sleep by it, not realizing the idolatry that has now taken hold of us. You don't believe that we have an idol issue? Let me encourage you to pay attention next year when the presidential election rolls around. Idolatry abounds, even in the church. Wait till the next big issue hits the United States. Watch the churches. Which ones stay true to the word versus which one follows culture right into idolatry and idol worship? Idolatry abounds. And here's what Paul says. Paul says this word to the believers. He says this, I do not want you to be participants with demons. In other words, Paul wants the church to understand that you cannot have fellowship with demons and expect to leave unchanged or unscathed. Again, Paul's not contradicting what it is that he just taught in chapter 8. Rather, what Paul is doing is saying this. Listen, food is food. But beware of the idol and the worship that comes with it and where it leads. Because you see, this food has been set apart for a reason. And if it's not of God then it's demonic. Thus, be aware of the influence it can have upon you. Paul continues from there in verse 21, and he says this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Notice that Paul now is calling out the Corinthian Christians who again thought that because of their newfound freedom, they could do what they want, when they wanted, and how they wanted to do it. And again, the example that was given is food and drink. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, listen, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and think it's okay to eat and drink from the tables of idols and temples built with demonic influence. In other words, you can't have it both ways. 
You can't all of a sudden, like we said a week ago, look at your faith in Jesus Christ and think, hey, it's okay for me to go out and do this, even though the Word of God says I shouldn't. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway because I'm saved by the grace of God. Therefore, I have this get-out-of-jail-free card. This is not monopoly, by the way. No, Paul says this is very serious. Paul says you can't come to worship Jesus one day and then continue to live a life committed and dedicated to idols that are leading you away from God, whether you know it or not. I'll give you a tangible example of what I'm talking about. I imagine that all of us had busy weekends. I bet we did. We had full weekends. I'm going to tell you, I had a full weekend myself. I was up here with parents night out last night watching your children. No, I'm kidding. They were wonderful. Your kids were great. We had a great time last night. I think I probably got more trouble than they did. I'm going to be honest. That's usually true when I'm with the kids. Yeah, Allison's like, yes, and amen. But here's the reality. I got home last night, started my, my general Saturday night routine, getting ready for today, talked to the kids, had a great time laughing like we do in our house, listening to music. I love listening to music. Went to bed, woke up this morning. I want to tell you that I jumped out of bed cheerful, ready to rock, like I was Cinderella singing worship. But that's not what happened. My alarm went off, and the first thought that ran through my mind was this. I am tired. I do not want to get out of this bed. How many of you had that thought? You probably did, right? So you don't need to raise your hand. Some of you raised your hand. Come forward and confess. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, I appreciate your honesty and your transparency. Thanks be to God. But here's the reality. I'm going to say something to you that uh, is a phrase that I've been hearing over and over on social media. I've heard it for years. It's kind of become a catchphrase. Uh, Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. And so here's what happens. Do you know why? Do you know why we struggle to get out of bed on Sunday morning to come to worship? Do you know why? Because there are idols in our life. Because demonic activity abounds. Because there are things in this world that tell us in our sin nature, hey, you don't need to be a part of worship today. Because the devil would love nothing more than to separate the body of believers and make you think, that you're isolated and alone. And so what's the best way to do that? To keep you away from being together. To make sure that you're not even recognizing what's happening all around you. So recognize it. Even in the simple thing of, of wanting to get up and come to the worship. Paul, listen, he says this. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. For how can we who die to sin still live in it? Notice how Paul says to not only the Corinthian Christians, but also to the Romans. He says, look, look, you can't worship the Lord, live in His grace, and then continue in your own sin. You can't worship the Lord, live in His grace, and then, and then continue in idolatry. You've got to be aware of what's happening around you. You've got to recognize what's going on all around you. Listen, again, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is not at all how faith in Christ works. You see, Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to understand that we as believers today, we cannot compromise our faith simply because we now have grace. Rather, what we need to do because of that grace in faith, we need to recognize the influences that are happening all around us. And when idolatry begins to pop up in our lives, we need to flee from it because it's only going to seek to remove you and take you away from God. And as if that wasn't enough, 
Paul closes with verse 22, and here's what he says. Again, rhetorical question. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I love how Paul closes with a question that really would cause the greatest of believers to take a step back and think before they respond. I mean, think about what Paul is asking in this moment. He's saying, listen, you knowers, you, you, you believers who claim to have wisdom, who think it's okay to continue in your wisdom and yet not recognize the idols that are around you, not realize that, that you're doing this together. I'm talking to you. He says, do you, do you honestly believe that you want to be in a position where you are provoking God? I mean, think about that for a moment. We're talking about the God who when questioned by Job, God spoke out of the whirlwind and said to Job, brace yourself like a man, for I will question you and you shall answer me. We're talking about that God. We're talking about the same God who spoke creation into existence. He spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and it came to be. That's the God we're talking about. We're talking about the God who got so fed up with sin in this world that with the exception of Noah and the animals, decided to flood everything. And yet we're talking about the same God who in His grace and His love and His mercy offered us His Son, our Lord and Savior, who came in the form of man, fully human, fully divine. Thank you, hypostatic union. So that we might be saved. Paul says this. You want to test that God? You think for a second that in your idol worship, you believe that you're stronger than that God? I don't know about you, but upon reading this question, my answer is real simple. Um, no. I'm good. I don't want any part of provoking God. I don't want any part of, of even thinking that I may be stronger than God. I don't want God to, to even think that I may think that I'm stronger than Him. But you see, here's the problem. Because that's exactly what we do when we place people like celebrities and we place stuff above God. You see, for Paul, he says, look, when it comes to eating food in an idol's temple, when it comes to these idol celebrations that you continue to go to and you're like, hey, it's okay. This is not a big deal. We're going to continue to do it. We're going to continue to endorse it. Not a problem. Paul says this, yeah, stop. Why? Because you're called to worship the one true and living God. And nothing should ever nor can ever take his place. Why does Paul say this? Because as he writes, our idol worship makes God jealous. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Some of you hear that and you think of that song that was around for a little bit, that he is jealous for me and it's all lovey-dovey. Uh -uh, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about jealousy and not in a good way. The jealousy that leads to judgment. It's a judgment that then leads to punishment. A punishment that leads to God's wrath being poured out. And so Paul asks this question, who wants that? There are some who claim to be followers of Christ and they have said this in the midst of their idol worship, in the midst of their sin. They've said this, well, 
I will just talk to God about what it is that I'm doing when I get there. And he and I will come to some sort of agreement. To paraphrase Paul, he says, (laughs) good luck. Because it's not happening. You see, again, Paul is speaking to those who claim to be mature in their faith. He's talking to the the knowers at this point. And he says, listen, you know this about God. You know this God. So flee from idolatry. Refuse to eat what has been offered in pagan temples. Since the Lord will become jealous. And you know what comes next. You see, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to hear this word and now recognize the influence that is all around us. We have to take a look at everything that we're a part of. Everything that we're seeing, everything that we're hearing, everything that we're doing. I'm going to encourage you to take a step further. Things that you're even watching with your kids. And say, how in this moment can I point my children back to the truth that is found in the Word of God? Maybe we need to even be that way with our friends when it comes to it. You see, we have to realize that there are things that are all around us today that would love to take the place of God in our lives. And these things are demonic. And the reality is, these demonic things don't want us to know that they're at work, and they don't want us to know that they exist. And yet, we need to realize the things that we think we need the things that we think we need in order to get through this life and simply say to them, no, what I really need is more of you, God. What I really need is more of you and your word and and less of me. So I'm going to heed Paul's words. And these things that are idols in my life, yeah, they're gone because I'm choosing to flee from them today. Brothers and sisters, don't allow the stuff to take the place on the throne of your life that is specifically reserved for our Savior and Lord. I love how John Calvin puts it when talking about this passage. He says this, Pay attention, for we must always look to the intention with which a thing is done. And so in light of that, I want to ask you this question. Are you watching? Are you aware of what is happening all around you? Do you see what has influence in your life and what does have influence? Is it true and good and beautiful and honorable and according to the Word of God? Or is it something else? Is it something that's quickly becoming an idol in your life? Do you realize what is of God versus what is demonic? Paul would say this to us. Watch your life. Realize the influence that is all around you. Realize the the influence that is even within your own home. You see, for Paul... He wanted the church to continue to grow. And for the sake of the gospel, he wanted them to flee from idolatry. So he uses the example of the Lord's Supper to show the Corinthian Christians that we need to recognize that we are now together in this walk. We are together in our struggles. You've got something that's got a death grip on your life. You don't have to go it alone. You've got Jesus and you've got a faith family. Utilize what you got. But at the same time, through the example given to us from the Old Testament and and through this conversation on foods being sacrificed to idols, Paul wants us to to see and, and he reveals to us that we need to now flee from idolatry, 
by recognizing what stuff and what people now have influence over us. And so Paul says, for the sake of accountability, answer the question. Does this stuff, does it glorify God? Or has it taken the place of the Lord in my own life and in my own heart? You see, here's the reality. Paul said it, idols are nothing. He's talking about food and drink. At the end of the day, food is food and drink is drink. They can't speak, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't feel, they can't even walk. But if we give in to them, if we fail to see the demonic work that is taking place behind them, then the demonic work will do its best to draw us away from the Lord and draw us further and further into sin. But thanks be to God that we do serve a God who loves. Thanks be to God that we serve a God who always provides a way out. Remember, we talked about that a week ago. We talked about how God, when all the doors are shut, God doesn't just open a window. He knocks down a wall. Notice that's literally what happens in the passage today. Paul says, hey, you want to notice? You want to know how you can get rid of idols? Recognize they're real. Do it together. What does that sound like to you? A window? Mm -mm. Sounds like knocking down a wall to me. There's plenty of help. So we have to ask ourselves again, does this thing, has it, has it, has it taken the place of, of, of our worship and glorifying God? Has it taken the place of God in my life and my heart? Because again, idols are nothing. But with God, our great and gracious and loving and merciful God, the same God yesterday, the same God today, the same God forever, that God in grace has provided hope. And He's the same God who continues to call us to Him. So as His people, be aware of what is happening in your life and in your home. Be aware of what is happening all around you. And as Paul says, flee from idolatry. Now again, I want to leave you with one final warning. This coming from C.S. Lewis, again from the Screwtape Letters. You really should read this book. But again, demon speaking to demon. Notice what they say. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Hear the warning. Be aware. Recognize and realize what is happening. And as Paul says to the church, flee from idolatry. Let's pray together.